0: Coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, and broadcasting from the historic McKinney Center, it's Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show, I'm your
1: host, Jules Corriere. And I'm your co-host, Rochelle Conley. And have we got some fun in store for you tonight.
0: Each month, we go out into the hills and hollers of East Tennessee and the Southern Appalachian region, and we collect stories about this place that we call home.
1: Then we put them all together for a one-hour show performed by our regular cast of folks from this region. We also bring in some of the area's best musicians to show off the incredible talent we have around here. And tonight is no exception. That's
0: right, Rochelle. We've got some great stories reaching pretty far back and into a time period we like to think of as BG,
1: before Google. Before Google. And if you can remember such things as reference libraries, telephone operators, sewing machines, cars you can actually fix by yourself, or candy that you can buy for a nickel, a dime, or a quarter, this show is for you.
0: Now, if you can't remember these things, you're either really, really, really old, or you are so young that you might find yourself lost this evening. But that's okay. Our stories will help you find your way back.
1: And we are really glad to have someone who found his way back to our show, and that is Adam Bolt. Yeah. He's a musician from Abington, Virginia, who first played with us last year, and since then he's been part of the Tennessee Songwriters Competition. He's played in venues all over Virginia and Tennessee, and that's all in between running the best vineyard this side of Napa.
0: You bet, and if you haven't been there, you need to go. We'd like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission for their generous support of this program.
1: And we'd also like to thank Gary and Sandy Degner for sponsoring our show so we can continue bringing you these great stories and music.
0: Now, before we get started, I'd like to ask everyone to silence
1: their phones. And that is a statement that you would never have heard of in the time we call BG.
0: In the old days, when you left the house, you left all forms of communication behind. No telephone, smartwatches, no pagers. When I was a teenager, my mom always wanted me to have a quarter with me just in case I needed to make a call at something called a payphone.
1: A payphone was one of those things you'd see in stores or on street corners or in a little booth. You'd go in the booth for privacy, put in a quarter and make a call.
0: Or change into your superhero outfit.
1: I have worked for the phone company for over 23 years and I can assure you that you will not find a payphone booth around here anywhere. They're all a thing of the past.
2: I wonder
0: where superheroes change clothes these days.
2: Now there was a time not too long ago that people talked on telephones. They actually had a conversation. We used to memorize the phone numbers of people we thought we were important.
0: I still remember the phone number of a boy I met at the sand pool at Fort Eustis. I was 12. It was the first time a boy gave me his number. <sighs> Chuck Quist, if you were out there, I really did mean to call, but I was too nervous.
2: Now, memorizing numbers was a real thing. And if you didn't know somebody's number and you wanted to talk there were actual phone numbers you could call and ask people for a phone number. Now, I'm not talking about Siri or Google or Alexa. I mean real, live humans. Well, they would even connect you. Now, in Jonesboro, there was a telephone exchange right on Main Street in the little building where the Silver Raven is today. In the 1930s, you would have found two people there, both named Minnie. They worked upstairs as Jonesboro's telephone operators. Their job was to connect a caller to their party. Now, (laughs) you think Google listens in on your calls now? Well, they had nothing on the phone operators of the past. Those operators knew before anyone else who was sick, who was getting married, who might be expecting, who was going out of town, who might be coming to town, or whose husband was in the doghouse. They were just on top of it, but of of course, it was all in the name of doing their very best to keep this community connected. Now the two minis knew everything that was going on in Jonesboro, and usually they knew where everyone was. If a caller could not reach their party, that is, if the person they were calling did not pick up, the two minis had a habit of looking out the window up and down Main Street to see if they could find him. If they spotted the person, they'd just shout out the window, Hey, so-and-so's on the line! Run home and pick up the call! Now that's service.
3: Back to school shopping used to be an exciting time for me. I remember going to the mall with my parents, and it was only a couple of times a year when that would happen. Back to school and Christmas time. Mom would take me upstairs to the children's department at Sears, and I'd get to pick out animals outfits. They were outfits that had little zoo animals on the tags. There'd be pants and skirts and sweaters of all different kinds. But the trick was to pick out matching outfits and you would do that by getting clothes that had all say lions on the tags or monkeys. As long as the animal tags matched, you were guaranteed to look good. It gave me, kids like me a sense of independence in choosing clothes that I liked and provided parents oh, with a sense of relief knowing that their children wouldn't be going to school wearing mismatched outfits. In theory, this should have worked, but somehow I always found a lion I couldn't live without, a monkey I couldn't live without, and felt like it didn't matter if I wore them together because, you know, they were all in the same zoo anyway.
4: Well, in my day, I didn't have those kind of choices about clothes. My mother had a treadle sewing machine and made all of my clothes. She got it in 1929. My father wouldn't have been able to afford it, even at that. But one day, a man with a truck full of things had come through Boone, North Carolina, where we lived at the time, and he got stuck in the mud. His truck was so bad, he couldn't get it out. He needed to get to the next town over because he was a salesman and had all these things they were going to buy. My father was driving his mule and cart and saw the man needed help and stopped. After working a better part of the morning, the mule pulled the truck out. The man was grateful, but seeing how he hadn't sold his wares yet, he didn't have any money to offer my father. My father said he didn't need anything, he just wanted to be helpful, but the man insisted and said, take anything out of the truck that you see, My father saw the sewing machine and said that my mom would probably appreciate that. And the man gave it to him. Mama made all of my clothes after that. And she even handed the machine down to me when I got married and I used it too. And my mama made beautiful, just beautiful
5: clothes with it. My mother and mamma made my clothes too. Remember the little feed sacks and the flower sacks? I had a little bolero jacket made out of one, and I wore it to church. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was so fancy, made right out of that cloth. By the time I was 10, I was making my own dresses. I learned that one flower sack had three yards. I got any flower or feed sacks that had red designs, and my sister got the ones with blue. Daddy was always sure to look for those colors when it was time for another 100-pound bag. Sometimes they wouldn't have those colors in when it was time to shop. My mother would trade to get a red flower sack or a blue flower sack. The ladies all helped each other out that way. My friends wore green patterns and yellow patterns. One time... Daddy made a terrible mistake and got a sack with a big old rooster on the front of it. And Mama couldn't trade that thing for nothing. Well, it couldn't go to waste, so she made underpants for him. And so for a year or two, Daddy wore underbreeches with a big old rooster on his hind end. <laughs> I
3: had a broomstick skirt. Do you know what that is? It is sort of a pleated skirt for folks like us who couldn't afford a trip to Parks and Belk. Here's what it is. It's a gathered skirt. Wash the skirt and wrap it wet around the broomstick. This was an old trick that was learned and passed down from some of the Cherokee. Then you squeeze it out wet all wrapped around it. When it dried it was wrinkled like it was pleated. You put a wide band around the waist usually a fat sash or something, and wear it with a jacket and look right smart in it. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Nell Hobbs had a little store, and she had feed. She knew which ladies looked for certain colors, and she would hold some of these for them in the back. She put a red flower sack in the back for us, and when Daddy got paid, he'd go back there, pick it up, and pay for it. Some folks say that making clothes from flower sacks made for hard times. But it was good, sturdy cloth, and everyone was generous about sharing. You know, we were wealthy, but we just didn't know it. I can scarcely
6: remember what it was like before we had indispensable mini computers, also known as cell phones, personal assistance for 24 hours a day. I think I should start in the third grade. We were not yet champion spellers and readers. Any questions for the teacher? The response was, look it up. The 25-pound Merriam-Webster New World Dictionary rested in resplendent presence on a spindly-legged lectern at the front of the classroom. We would slouch reluctantly up to the formidable tome, heave it open, and try to find the word in its definition. Another repository of information was the reference section in the library, presided over by a spinster with bun and wire-rimmed glasses perched on the end of her nose. She followed us around the book-filled room intoning, toning, How can I help you? What do you need, dears? The librarian would answer our questions. I might add that each classroom also contained a treasure of books and maps, atlases and pamphlets, and daily newspapers. There was also a library at home. It was filled with my mother's research monographs, biographies, and books on history from all over the world. My room's bookcase held every book in the Bobsey Twins series. Each month, a volume of either the World Book Encyclopedia or the Encyclopedia Britannica would come in the mail. These books had been sold by a very earnest young man in a too-small suit who came to the house, assuring my parents that the purchase of these scholarly volumes would practically ensure their daughter's admission to the university of her choice. The 18 volumes set reposed in the place of honor in the living room bookcase alongside large, beautifully illustrated coffee table books. Once the set of encyclopedias was completed, an annual supplement was sent. I got rug burns on my elbows, reading them from cover to cover. Some other sources of information included printed phone books, address books compiled by civic organizations, and membership rosters. Such was life at eight years of age. In the ninth grade, I was introduced to the term paper. Research for these papers was noted on three by five index cards, shuffled many times over to constitute a fluid presentation of facts. Spell and fact-checking were laboriously completed by painfully slow reference to books, journals, and yes, the infamous dictionary. The final paper was produced on an IBM Selectric typewriter, and before that, a Royal Manual typewriter. Whiteout was not yet marketed, but erasers that made holes in our typewriter paper were. (laughs) Should you need copies of your work, either carbon paper was used in the typewriter, or you created a typewritten stencil that was affixed to a drum, inked with a nasty substance that invariably stained your hands and clothing, and rolled out. This was called a mimeograph copier. A copier, right. (laughs) My first graduate degree at NC State University was partially financed by my assignment as a research assistant to a political science professor in my department. His research required much computer-generated data. Yes, in 1969, the university had a room-sized IBM computer. I wrote a program using the Fortran language and fed punch cards into the front of this machine. If I'd made a mistake in programming or in punching the cards, the computer spat them back out, and they were not vomited in order. After three weeks of being spat on by the computer, I turned in my shoeboxes of cards and begged for a teaching assignment. (laughs) Well, let's fast forward to today. I have the mandatory laptop and cell phone. I didn't get along with that watch and the tablet was simply redundant. I tried Kindle, but I missed the inky smell and the heft of bound paper in my hand. The neighborhood bookstore was gobbled up by the big box discount stores, who in turn were eaten by online book warehouses. A beloved, musty, old used bookstore in Biltmore Village that was frequented by O. Henry Thomas Wolfe and Fitzgerald closed a few years back. It was a repository for ancient first editions and obscure authors. But there is a shop featuring massive bookshelves, wine bars, snacks, and lots of comfy chairs and sofas in the Grove Arcade in Asheville. It's a favorite place to while around the afternoon in the company of other aging bibliophiles like myself. I don't believe that phone use is encouraged there. When the internet was being developed and expanded for public use, an online encyclopedia called Wikipedia supplied detailed information. But with the coming of Google and other search engines, Wiki dwindled down to just a few sanitized lines. Public and school libraries are closing. Teachers are preparing students for standardized tests and failing to develop children's cognitive and reasoning abilities. I fear that we're being allowed only generic and minimal information on our devices. I much prefer the information overload that was available in my hands. As my parents intoned, bring back the good old days. The
7: good old days mean different things to different people. When my parents talk about the good old days, I hear about courting and dancing, not Tinder and e-harmony, but real people meeting in real places and having that moment of seeing each other from across the room as the band played their favorite song.
5: What do you mean? People dance today? Woo, woo!
7: Tristan, that is not dancing. That's an imitation of some kind of fit. (laughs) I'm talking about two people looking each other in the eyes, sharing some conversation as music plays. So romantic. And there used to be places where people could go and meet and dance. That's certainly
1: BG by gone. (laughs) My parents met at a dance. I've heard the story all my life from my father, and I could hear it again and not be bored. It was World War II, the setting, a USO dance.
8: People think about the Second World War, and they think of Normandy and Patton's march to the Rhine. And I was there for them all. But when I think about the war, I think about the USO. Before marching with Patton, before freeing Stalag, before Normandy, while crossing through small town America from one camp to another, we stopped in Blytheville, Arkansas. Blytheville had a booming main street, southern barbecue, and the prettiest girl I'd ever seen. I had the pleasure of meeting her at a USO
9: dance. Douglas, she's looking at you. Who? Over there, that group of Bettys, the brunette.
10: She's looking at you. There, she did it again.
9: Well, yes, you know, I'm,
10: I'm irresistible. I, <laughs> I dare you to talk to her. What? Prove
9: you're irresistible. Dance with her.
10: Yeah, I asked her.
9: Uh, you think she wouldn't? No. Nope.
10: Go right ahead. All right then,
8: I'll just show you.
10: you do that.
8: <sighs> She's really pretty, isn't she? Yes, she is.
10: Yep, sure is. Go ahead.
8: I, uh, t- I think I need a drink first. Go. Go! And so I went. And we danced, and we laughed, and I didn't see those scoundrels or friends for the rest of the night. I walked the most beautiful girl I've ever seen home that night and secured a date for the next night. My last night before we moved on, I was so nervous. I showed up 30 minutes early with flowers in hand, which I found out later I'd bought from our family. They own the florist shop. (laughs) I knocked on the door and her mother answered. Uh, good evening, I'm here to see Sarah.
1: Sarah,
7: Sarah. What is it, mom? I'm trying to get ready and leave before that G. Oh, hi.
8: Hi, <laughs> I um, brought you these flowers. Oh,
7: thank you, they're really lovely.
8: I know I'm early.
7: Oh, it's all right, just give me a moment. Let me grab my pocketbook.
8: Well, she was stuck with me that night, despite her best efforts to skip out on me. After that night, my unit moved on, but I kept writing her. Camp after camp, we moved. But Sarah and I kept writing until eventually, our unit passed through Blytheville again, and I married that girl. I stayed married to her through all of the European campaigns, through five children all the way up until cancer stole her away. So when I think about the Second World War, I don't think about the lives I saved as a medic or the tags I tied on bodies or even my bronze star from the president. When I think about the war, I think about the most beautiful girl I ever saw and the USO dance that introduced us.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. Thanks, Brett. And we're back. And I am so pleased to introduce our next guest, Adam Bolt. He is a musician from Abingdon, Virginia, who's become a real fan favorite on our show. And, Adam, will you play a few songs for us tonight?
11: hard to sleep there's nothing to watch pizza boxes empty cans on an old bar seat it's hard to stop picture me a single man I don't know where I was headed Oh, if I would have made it this far Most of my memories are shredded My wounds have turned into scars Now that you're home Matching socks. You knock the dust off the ceiling fan. A heart that beats. A ticking watch. A call to let you know where I am. Yes, a call to let you. If I would have made it this far Most of my memories are shredded My wounds have turned into scars Now that you're home Bananas hanging from a stand. Kick up your feet. Sit back and watch as I become the man that I really am. As I become the man that I. If I would have made it this far, most my memories are shredded, my wounds have turned into scars. Now that you're home. Thank you, Storytown.
0: And now you know why we like having him back. What poetry. Let's give him one more hand, and he's going to be back a little bit later on in the show, too.
1: Oh, wow. I know. I know. Don't make me cry next time, okay? (laughs) No, do. I love it
0: and now we've got now that now that we have just been just moved beyond words mm. we've got more words coming up Yes, jules, <laughs> we, jules, we have we... got more stories from before google yes <laughs> jules
1: we've heard stories about telephones libraries sewing machines and i mean lots of stories about traditional work and crafts around here but other traditions include how we get those things Malls weren't around, or even big grocery stores. You certainly didn't get things on Second Day Prime from Amazon, which is really like three or four day prime. (laughs) Most people around here shop from the gardens in their backyards, from small stands, and from rolling stores. Coming up next are some of those stories that happened BG, before Google, bygone, and literally again before Google.
12: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. In the summertime, when the bushes got ripe, We picked berries. On those days, we didn't get to know there was anything else in the world because all we saw from morning till evening was buckets and buckets and buckets of berries. We had to get them right when they ripened or else we'd lose them to the deer. And then we'd be hungry come January. Soon as we had them picked, my mother went to canning and oh, we had the jars full of goodies in the basement. Just like you'd see in the grocery store now, the season started out with the luscious strawberries and the strawberry jam. Then we moved on to blackberries and raspberries. July brought peaches from the orchard and in September, apples. Canning of the fruits happened all summer. Along with strawberry season, we had the early vegetables and then things really picked up. My mother stayed busy every day as we brought in the day's harvest. She had canned the pole beans, carrots, pickles tomatoes, and chow chow. Then came the all squash and zucchini. We were our own grocery store and we really worked for it. That's in addition to going to school and work and our other farm chores.
13: We also had a meat department known as the smokehouse. Every Thanksgiving, daddy and the neighbors got together and killed hogs. Everybody helped everybody. It was so much work The liver was in a five-gallon bucket, and you couldn't freeze or smoke it. You had to eat it pretty fast. Most of the time when we ate chicken, we got one piece, but Mama got a whole platter of fried liver and put it in front of us. Nobody in my family likes it anymore because we had to eat so much. We had to eat until that platter was gone. We had it breakfast, dinner, and supper, rolled in flour with gravy and biscuits.
12: (laughs) Well, we'd use the kettle then to make lye soap after the hog killing. That was a lot of work, but it kept us in meat and soap over the winter. In a big copper kettle, we also made apple and peach butter during the fall. We made most everything we needed, but a few things we couldn't. And that's what the general store was for. We'd go there for coffee, baking powder, sugar, and for a treat sometimes, was a Coca-Cola with peanuts in it. Sometimes, though, Daddy would get a popsicle, break it in half and give us each a half, and then that was a real treat. Then we'd go back to school and talk about it.
14: Oh, and when the rolling store started coming through our way, we got up in society. We didn't use money, but we could take him six eggs and get hands and hands full of stuff. He'd resell the eggs down the road. Most of what he had is what he got traded for at other places. Once in a while, I'd get a little pocket change in addition to the eggs. I'd pick that up by sitting with folks who were sick. I was also the one always sent if a relative was having a baby. One time, I was sent to my sisters to take care of their little girl from daylight till dark because they worked in the fields. I also fixed meals, tea and beans and cornbread for dinner each night because that's what I knew how to cook. Sometimes they paid me a little something. I thought I was absolutely wealthy when I got enough money to get a jawbreaker from
15: the rolling store. Someone worked to put things in the rolling stores and in the canned goods stored in the basements, and they were farmers like us. Farming is a year-long process, even when it doesn't look like anything is happening, like in the winter months, something is happening, always. Though most people think it starts in the spring, because that's when everything comes alive. Green grass, flowers, and white canvas tobacco beds announced the arrival of spring in Boone's Creek back in the 60s. Ew, Mom, the milk smells like onions. In the springtime, the milk would taste like onions because of the onions the cows ate in the new pasture.
4: Ew, and it tastes like onions, too. Here, eat this.
3: What is it? A green onion.
15: You wouldn't notice the taste of the onion milk if you took a bite of onion before you drank it.
2: (laughs) Thanks, Mom. It's just like magic. Now I can eat my cornflakes.
15: Spring is when we all ate onions before breakfast. And it's also when the tilled soil and pastures were fertilized. And there was no better fertilizer
16: than fresh cow manure. The removal of the manure from the barn was an art form in itself. We'd lay down fallen leaves in the bottom of the stable in the fall as a foundation. And then when we started feeding hay in the winter, we'd keep the cattle in the barns all night. And each morning we'd open the doors to let the cattle go to water and we would spread generous amounts of straw on top of that fresh manure and it would get tramped down in the night. That was my chore during the fall and winter months, me and my brothers, winter farming. The process was repeated daily and the manure would rise three or four
15: feet through the winter. In the spring, it was ready to be pitchforked out of the barn and loaded into a manure spreader and then strategically
16: placed in the fields. Farm boys were trained in the use of a pitchfork like they were taught to walk. Fresh cow manure fermenting all winter gave a distinct odor. Ew, mom, they smell like cow poop. What are you talking about? I don't smell anything.
15: After pitchforking for a couple of hours and getting it in your sinuses, you wouldn't notice it very much. (laughs) We farmers didn't give this process a second thought, but the city folk Taking their Sunday drives in the country would often wrench and gag like a dry hand pump at the smell. (laughs) The immediate area of fertilization would be so rank the morning after spreading manure.
2: Skunks would vacate the premises. (laughs)
3: Flies would sit on the barbed wire fences and throw up.
16: The day after you spread manure, the stench would hang low to the ground like a vapor mist and stick to fabrics like molasses.
3: You wouldn't hang your clothes on the line or wear your good clothes till the smell died down. You don't want to put down a tablecloth or a bed sheet with it smelling like that.
15: I remember the spring of 1960. My brother and I had cleaned out our barn.
9: Then, Ernest Carter called us. Boys, I need you to help me clean out my big barn. Meet me there Saturday morning. I'll give you each a dollar an hour. A dollar an hour? Whoa! Well,
15: that was pretty good money back then. And I knew by the size of his barn, we'd get paid a
16: full day's work. Mama, we're going to clean out Mr. Ernest's barn on Saturday. I'll earn enough money to... Well, I don't know what I'll do with it yet, because $10 is a lot of money. A man has to think about big decisions like that. Now, which barn is that? The one over next to the church. Oh, that is a big barn.
3: You and your brother will be regular Rockefellers by the time you're done.
15: We arrived on the job at 7 a.m. and noticed that Ernest had plowed a 20-acre field next to the
9: church. Is that where you're going to spread the manure? Well, I ain't spreading it on the unplowed soil. Get to it. I'll see you boys at the end of the day. Hey, that's
15: right next to the church, and everybody will be coming tomorrow for the Easter service. Oh, it's gonna smell real bad. Reckon we should remind Mr. Ernest? No, wait. We gotta
16: tell him, it wouldn't be right if we don't. Okay, we'll tell him. Only, well, we'll tell him after we've earned the money. We're already here to do the work, and hey, a buck's a buck in this economy. And the church
15: would be as full on Easter Sunday as it was at Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They'd bring out the folding chairs. There'd be 250 in a church that seats 200, and a
16: lot of them'd be city folk visiting their country relatives. Really? <laughs> this manure is gonna be really ripe in time for Sunday school. We've
15: manure for nine hours, and most of it was spread within a couple hundred yards of the church. (laughs) Ernest was happy about what we'd accomplished and paid us $10 each and told us to keep the change. We thanked him. Then we kept our side of the deal.
16: All done, Mr. Carter. So um, are you coming to church tomorrow? It's Easter, you know. I didn't even think about tomorrow being Sunday.
9: Let alone Easter Sunday. Why didn't you boys tell me tomorrow was Easter Sunday? Oh, no. Those Christians will be ready to crucify me when they come in and smell that manure. I'm going to pack up tonight and head to my cousin's house at the beach for a few days, at least till the smell goes away. Maybe they'll forget by the time I get back.
15: <laughs> that was one special Easter service. <laughs> the farmers that attended, our dad, granddad's buddies, all arrived and smiled at the familiar smell. Spring, a new crop! But they were also smiling because they knew what the reaction would be of the city folk in attendance that morning. (laughs) They grinned at the turned-up noses. I'm sure that many of the members felt bad for those who weren't accustomed to the smell of manure. But the grass was green and the flowers were beautiful. Uh, Some of the women had recognized the day before and took action.
3: Hello, Marge, it's Beth. Call the Schubert Club. It is a flower emergency. We need fragrant flowers to fill the church tomorrow or the whole chapel will smell like an outhouse.
15: Many of the women brought vase after vase of fresh-cut flowers into the sanctuary. The fragrance of the flowers somewhat offset the smell of the manure.
9: Yeah,
2: before it smells like cow poop. Now it smells like lilacs and cow poop.
15: (laughs) Everyone wore their Sunday best. Most of the women were wearing hats. Eyebrows were raised and noses twitched, and Ernest Carter's ears must have been burning that morning as people discussed his timing on cleaning out his barn next to the church.
16: Some allowed that those Overbay boys probably had something to do with it.
15: Yeah, we get blamed for everything, even when we didn't do it, which isn't very often that we didn't do it. But, like each year in the past, the kids showed off their Easter outfits and baskets with colored eggs and chocolate rabbits, and like usual, they hid eggs in the cemetery during Sunday school. There were also smells of perfume and shaving lotion and senator that the men used to cover up their tobacco use. But the farmers savored the smell of the freshly plowed sod and manure that would bring crops to sustain their families for another year. It was a way of life here from the beginning. Still is for many, but not as many. With the price of houses and the land going up, it's hard to hold on to tradition. In the future, a future with maybe a little more steady income, is sitting right there. Small family farms are becoming fewer and fewer in an economy that, well, face it, these small farms might be needed more and more, but just like everything else, we'll probably discover it just a moment too late when the last big field is turned over for development when the cows you milked are in photographs on the walls of Cracker Barrel or Office Building that's planted in the old field. It was hard work, and I don't know if I'd call them the good old days, but there was plenty of good in them, along with the hard work. I buy my own milk from a grocery store now, and I don't need to eat an onion to make it taste good. But back then, I knew where that milk came from. It came from hard work and love. And I guess, in the end, that is what makes anything a good old day for an old guy like me.
0: Thanks, Tim and Mark and Tristan and Doug for that story that came to us from a remembrance by Leon Overbay. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. And we're back. Now, Rochelle, we have been enjoying stories of the olden days tonight. And up next are some folks who know all about that.
1: You must be talking about the Heritage Alliance.
0: Exactly. And they've got some stories from the archives that really explore those days before Google. And a little piece we like to call... Ask, Ask the, the historian. historian. I am
17: not your usual historian. But Anne did give me her blessing to come before you this evening and share these stories. Now, we've been talking about how everyone got their information before the World Wide Web was at your fingertips. There's probably one that you're not even thinking about. I doubt it's even on anyone's radar.
2: Is it an encyclopedia? No. Old telegrams? Nope. Uh, cave drawings? (laughs) Well, it might be a little bit
17: newer than that. I'm talking about ledger books, specifically hotel ledger books.
2: Now, what kind of information can you get from those? Oh, loads. Of course, there's
17: the basic info, same as today. You check into a modern hotel. They're going to ask your name, place of residence, how long you're staying. They asked those same questions over 100 years ago. But they also noted noted occupation, time of day, someone checked in, form of payment. And we're fortunate that in our local archives, we have ledger books from the Chester Inn and the Eureka Inn. Here are some things you can glean from them. For example, we know that not everyone paid for their stay or their meal in cash. Some people bartered, and they found very interesting things to barter.
13: I had a wonderful stay here at the planter's house. I'm ready to settle up my bill.
4: We do appreciate your business now. You spent four nights here with four full meals, and you had hot food. You had a horse that we had to board and feed and shod. Uh, that brings your total to $84.
13: $84. Hmm. I only have 40 on me.
4: So you're saying you can't pay? I can walk right down the street and find the constable. Well,
13: hold up. I can pay. I just got to get creative. Here, I have an extra pair of shoes. I always like to keep a pair handy. Mm, well, that's a start. Oh, and an extra nightshirt. How about that? It's only missing one button. And I've also got some eggs I got from a nice woman in town.
4: All right, keep going. You racked up quite a bill.
13: I have some some Good, clean fireworks.
4: Why do you have firewood in your trunk?
13: Well, you never know when you'll need it. Also, here's a book or two or three or four. Oh, and this lovely pocket watch. It's right twice a day.
4: You carry around a lot of stuff.
13: And Henrietta, although I hate to part with her.
4: You carry a chicken around with you?
13: Well, in case I get hungry, but don't tell her I said that.
4: You know what? Fold a load of laundry and we'll consider it even. You can keep Henrietta.
17: Now the ledger books from the Planners house, which is what the Chester Inn was known as in the late 1800s, are full of people bartering for their beds and meals with firewood, eggs, shoes, and even laundry. Some people did chores at the inn in lieu of cash or coin payment. We also have the ledger books from the Jonesboro Inn which operated out of the Chester Inn in the early 1900s. Now these ledger books tell a similar story. The books from the Jonesboro Inn go a step further though and include a person's race. We know that the inn was segregated, an unfortunate part of its history, but we also know that it was an important place of business to both the black and white communities in Jonesboro. And in the ledger, we find the names of Mrs. James Gott, John Ray, and other prominent members of the black community who bartered with the Jonesboro Inn. In addition to the ledgers from the Chester Inn, we have the ledgers from the Eureka Inn. My personal favorite is the ledger book from 1902. On one summer day, the inn hosted a stag oyster supper. And if you don't know what that is, it's a bunch of guys sitting around eating oysters. And in the ledger, they wrote down the name of each gentleman at the dinner and his profession.
2: W.R. Lowry, merchant. Paul White, hardware store. W.P. Shipley, scholar. Alex Patton, postal clerk. Ed Boyd, merchant. John Keyes, carpenter. C.S. Mason, County Court Clerk, and J.H. Peoples, Hobo. Mm -hmm. It's a
17: profession. And that might have been a joke, seeing as we know other members of the Peoples family were merchants. The best part of the book, in my opinion, is the poem hastily scrawled at the bottom of the ledger. Why is that poem written there? We have a theory. What
9: are you doing? Just checking people in for the oyster night. I'm sure looking
8: forward to your toast tonight. What? You do remember it's your night
9: to give the toast, right? Uh, yeah, of course I remember. It's going to be a great one, just you wait. All right, I'll see you in there. Oh my gosh, I forgot the toast. I need some paper quick. Hey, there's some space here at the bottom of this ledger. May our cares be as few as the dewdrops at moontide, and our joys as many as the stars of the night. May our lives be as free from sorrow as the babe in the cradle, and may our pleasures be as bright as the rays of silvery moonlight upon darkened waters. May our footsteps glide smoothly on down through the path of life, and when the silvery threads have marked our brow, may we sometimes think of the oyster supper of tonight. <laughs>
17: Hotel ledgers are wonderful pieces of humanity and a reminder that none of us is perfect. <laughs> Sometimes we're a little short on cash. Sometimes we forget to write a toast until we're about to give it. I'll end with the final story of connection. A couple visited the Chester Inn Historic Site, a museum and museum, a few summers ago. They talked to the museum staff about some ancestors who had visited Jonesboro over 100 years ago. They asked if their ancestors would have stayed at the Chester Inn when it was known as the planter's house. The couple had a date on a letter written by those ancestors. So the staff decided to pull up the ledger and look up the date. To everyone's amazement, there were the names of their ancestors in their own handwriting. They had signed the ledger book. The couple saw the handwriting of their ancestors, and for a moment, the two families, separated by generations, were together in the same room. And to make it even more special, the gentleman in the couple was named after the ancestor listed in the ledger. Everything is a source of information. If you look at it,
5: the right way.
1: Thank you, Sabra. And I think that's almost oh, all. Oh, no, 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 no. Not yet, Rochelle. Jules, we've heard about farming, shopping, sewing, canning, phones, and people who work at the phone company, computers, gizmos and gadgets, all kinds of history and culture, What else could we possibly be missing?
0: Oh, Rochelle, don't even try to pretend that you didn't go with me down to Malone Holler to find out a little bit about what they did in their bygone days.
1: Malone Holler? I don't even know what you are talking about. I would never go to our region's moonshine capital. Jules, my mom listens to the show.
0: okay. Well, uh, of course, I, I forgot. I brought my other friend. Michelle! Yeah, it was Michelle, and we had a wonderful time collecting this next story all about corn.
1: Nice save.
0: Thanks, but it's true. Corn has a long history here. You know, cornmeal was so valuable around here that for a while it was used as currency. I guess
17: people really liked their cornbread back then.
18: Corn was used in a lot of other things around here, too.
1: Yeah, I think we all know what you're talking about. But in the earliest days here, some of the farmers did distill their corn legally. In 1796, 64 residents were taxed for distilling over 15,000 gallons of whiskey. Of course, the Whiskey Rebellion was just getting underway at this point, These same formers didn't declare making any whiskey after this point. Some of their descendants are still rebelling to this very day, rebelling with their homegrown brew.
14: That's right.
1: Malone Holler's always
14: been known for its brew. The original brew. The kind you see cooking a mile away. Why, there was a time back in the 20s, there wasn't a stand of trees or a branch of water that didn't have white vapors rising in the sky like spirits.
18: Spirits, all right the best in Appalachians, Malone Holler's original brew.
14: The sugar, corn, yeast, malt, and water brew. Not necessarily in that order.
13: I know the order and how much of each granddaddy passed the recipe to us.
14: Tradition is big in these parts.
13: <laughs> and don't you forget it. Still, there's always room for improvement.
18: Don't try nothing fancy to make it better. Younguns always try to make something fancy that don't need to be. Y'all seen some of that new fruit flavored moonshine for sale in liquor stores? Liquor stores? You won't find my stuff for no, for no sale in a liquor store. Goes against tradition. Look, if you don't have to hide your still, if you don't have to make the deals behind the bins and the roads, you ain't really selling moonshine. Me? I make moonshine, 100% make that 100 proof pure moonshine, and I don't need changing my recipe. I don't want you putting no blueberry essence or apricot peach or that dang blasted pomegranate. I can't even get denture cream anymore that ain't pomegranate flavored. Ain't nobody wants to drink pomegranate moonshine. You stick with the recipe, you
14: hear me? Granddaddy has two rules when it comes to make and shine. Stick to the recipe.
13: And don't get caught. And don't forget, it's good for what ails you too. Granddaddy said there was this doctor who took care of folks around here. Never had a sick day in his life till last winter. We got lots of
14: snow and ice. He called up the operator and said he wasn't gonna make rounds. Before Granddaddy knows it, there's a knock on the door. Sheriff's outside. Granddaddy's just made a new batch of brew and was about to violate rule number two.
13: He ain't got time to hide it in figures.
10: Well,
18: I'm going to jail.
10: Take it easy, Papa. I, I ain't here to arrest you. I'm on official business. I need a gallon of your recipe. Medicinal purposes. Medicinal? Gladys called subtle doc of sick. Folks around here need them pretty bad. Last time I got the bug, Missy poured me a little of your stuff. By morning, I was good to go. So, Pappy, I, I need a gallon to bring to Doc so I can nurse him back to health. How much do I owe you? Well, usually it's 50 cents a jar, a
18: fifty a case, but since it's professional courtesy, let's say double half price. Just kidding. Uh, George Washington and we'll call her even. And here's the sheriff in his uniform,
14: in his marked car, making a transaction. He carried the moonshine over to Doc's place. Doc took a good snort, fell asleep, woke up the next morning fit as granddaddy's fiddle.
18: Like I said, good for what ails you.
0: Thanks, Gary. And thanks for my good friend, Michelle, for helping me collect that story. It's a good thing I had the recorder going because I had so much fun down there. It's hard to remember it all. I bet it is.
1: Those were some good old days.
0: Thank you all so much for joining us tonight as we travel back in time to hear some stories about those good
1: old days. We'd like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission for their generous support of our time-traveling adventures. And we'd also like to thank Adam Bolt, and we'd also like to
0: thank Gary and Sandy Degner for their support.
1: And we especially want to thank our storytellers, young and old, and, of course, you, our listening audience. Be sure to listen to us on the last Wednesday of each month on WETS 89.5
0: FM out of Johnson City, or listen to us on demand anytime on the Storytown app, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: Or you
1: can hear us on your desktop at storytowns.simplecast.com. That's right. Thank you all so much for coming out. See you next month.